So as we tape this right now, uh, in the last 24 hours, there was an individual in Kenosha by the name of Jacob Blake was shot by an officer. And, and I don't have the full context of it. You don't know do right? at this time. So it's beyond us to, to really give any meaningful, uh, unless you feel comfortable doing so, but I would say like, we don't have the detail of what led to or the full detail of why the officer conducted himself the way he did. What we have seen though, and I think this is what has frustrated me, is uh, politicians like Governor Evers come out and issue uh, statements which, um, this is again my wording, but more or less insinuating that racism has motivated in one shape or form the conduct of an officer. And at the same time, the governor has admitted that he does not have the full context of the situation either. And I can tell you that as, as a person who loved and loves their profession, um, when there is a blemish or a tarnish from an officer who is unethical, from an officer who engages in criminal behavior, from an officer who works outside of the script of what we've been trained to do, we too want to see that individual get the full measure of accountability for those actions because that taints the badge of all of us. And so, as we can see, obviously, from the most uh, extreme example, of George Floyd, I don't think I heard one uh, law enforcement official anywhere rallying and coming to the aid of the, the principal officer who was involved in that nine and a half minute saga, however long it was, right. because everybody suffers under the burden of that very visual um, indictment of what happened. In Madison, because of the criticality of every police move, I frankly worry that officers aren't going to do as trained right. and they're going to be killed because they hesitated and they paused and right. they waited because they said, oh, I don't want to be stranded in left field and a pariah in my own community. I have kids that go to school, I have friends, I have family. And I know that these things can take months to be resolved. And while if you're thinking all that, it's at your peril. In Madison, of course, she, the mayor currently sitting, is uh, wants to embrace defunding in the worst possible way, but she knows that that's a buzzword. So for those who are listening, the other euphemism for defunding in political circles now is reimagining. I've heard that. That's yeah, just the that. same thing. <laughs> reimagining and defunding are one and the same. Right. I don't want to see the cops strictly be a reactionary force to chaos, calamity, and crisis. Right. We want to be proactive. We want right. to use our downtime. I always tell my officers, we had pinwheels all over the department when I was there. It was a, a circular thing and said, um, engage, relate, listen, explain, repeat. Right. You're constantly on this pinwheel. And in that sense, when I see that I have five minutes between calls and I see kids playing horse, shooting baskets, I want that cop to park the car, go over, mm -hmm. shoot baskets with them and or kick a soccer ball with them so that they can see uh, police through a lens that isn't always thrust right. into taking somebody away or enforcing something. The enforcement, no one wants to always be the hammer and always be put in the position of who's the next nail. Right. And yet when you continue to constrict the, the, what I consider vital ancillary services that we do, then we are ultimately going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where all we do is have time to react. Exactly. And, right. and there's municipalities that are, have shown what this looks like. Detroit comes to mind. Oh. Just complete, I'm sure you, you're familiar with the story, but literally all they can do is go call to call. Right. That's it. And right. they're not going to get to all the calls. Uh, the citizenry is well aware of that. And so that further lessens the trust and so it is literally one negative interaction to the next, no proactive anything. Not, I'm not blaming police officers in Detroit, it's just the reality of their, their budget scenario. So much of what you talked about today, I think is a very critical message that all, every corner of society here that police officers want accountability. They want people on the job doing the right thing because Absolutely. they have a very personal vested interest. They wanna go home to their family at night. Absolutely. And it's just more likely to happen if their brethren officers are up to par and doing the right thing and, and trained properly and have the resources to do the job right.
I'm Kevin Nicholson, and this is the Right Idea Podcast. I'm Kevin Nicholson, volunteer president and CEO of No Better Friend Corp. Thank you for joining us for season two of the Right Idea Podcast. This season, we're sitting down and having conversations with a series of great Americans to celebrate our country, to talk about addressing our challenges, and to lay out a path forward. At this moment in time, our nation is struggling to come together as we continue to navigate the health and economic challenges presented by COVID-19. We're now in the home stretch of the 2020 presidential campaign, where there are very clear and wide divides. And after the death of George Floyd, both peaceful protests and riots have broken out across the country. From the depths of the depression to the midst of World War II, the American people have gotten through much worse. But this is a challenging time. Today, we hear radical cries to defund the police coming from our politicians and our teachers unions. All as the future of our children's education hangs in the balance, especially given debates over virtual and in-person learning. And it's hard not to feel that a fair amount of that debate is being conducted with an eye on the 2020 presidential election. Now the Wisconsin city of Kenosha is burning as riots have broken out over the past few days following an officer-involved shooting that we'll discuss during today's podcast. What's worse, Wisconsin's governor, Tony Evers, has fanned the flames of an already challenging situation by accusing Wisconsin law enforcement professionals of being racist. Given everything that's happening in the world, it's a particularly appropriate time to talk with today's guest on the Right Idea podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by former Madison, Wisconsin Police Chief Michael Koval, who served for two years as an FBI agent and 30 years as a Madison police officer. Chief Koval has been a strong, decisive leader in the Madison community, holding his own against the unrelenting criticism of Madison's radical local elected officials. Today's conversation will unpack important details on the challenges faced by the police, the failures of our politicians, and some of the ways we can ultimately reduce violent interactions with law enforcement, make the job easier for our police, and build safer communities for all. This is the Right Idea Podcast. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, so welcome. And Chief Cole, we're thrilled to have you here today. Um, and to have you on the Right Idea Podcast, thanks so much for coming all the way to Waukesha. We appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. These are not hostile environs, actually. I see some <laughs> lawn signs that say they support the police, and so I'm just take my, my did a little whiplash when a I was driving. Different world. So it is a different world. It's a better world in many regards. We are glad to be able to draw you out into the real world. A little, well, that's so you can nice. Experience I, I have to breathe that fresh, rarefied air of people that actually <laughs> like the cops from time to time. And there are many around here. I um, can see that. And there are many around here. We're doing our best, our level best, and no better friend to when and where people want to have a serious conversation about how mm. things can be done better. Great. Let's do it. Let's talk about how to make things better. Let's how one of the conversations I think we've had recently with a good friend, um, uh, Pastor Jerome Smith in Milwaukee, a bunch of black clergy uh, leaders from Milwaukee and Madison, all centered on like, look, Enforcement, or excuse me, accountability and law enforcement, yes, that's great. But by the way, let's try and make the job easier for the police by reducing the amount of negative interactions with the community. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's a real conversation. That's not disparaging police officers. No, that's substance. And I exactly. can always welcome and embrace that. Exactly. So so we'll talk more about that in a minute. I, and we're going to talk about problems and challenges and solutions to them. But before we do that, one one question we've been asking everyone that joins us on the Right Idea podcast this season is, and this is a chance to be positive as we kick things off, what is your favorite thing about America? What actually makes you think that this country is great and exceptional? I think that for the most part, we have an environment wherein the possibilities are endless for those who choose to exercise them to employ their uppermost uh, work ethic towards it. And I think that most of us are goal-oriented and goal-driven. And while there are always going to be uh, real or perceived barriers mm -hmm. to fulfillment of those dreams, I still believe that this country, more than any other, provides the opportunities, the safety nets, the incentivizing, the help, the mentoring, that anyone who truly decides that they want to be empowered to be at their level best and to achieve those optimal results, 
that this is the country, this is the environment where that is still possible. I still believe in the the premise of the Horatio Alger rags to riches narrative, because we still see those in whether they're the Fortune 500 narratives or whether they're even elected officials who come from very modest or meager means and have come have become to be big influence peddlers. But also to the extent that uh, you were invoking the name of some of your guests earlier with me, mm -hmm. is that these folks are just basically occupying a niche, a niche where they have some unique skill sets and they can make others around them feel hopeful, feel enlightened and, and feel like they have the resources behind them to emerge and to get on the other side of, of whatever the algorithm that they're up against and become better for it and improve their lot and then improve the lot of those around them, their family, their friends and their community. So I, I think that that's what I like about the United States is that and and I'm unapologetically believe in the capitalist system for that very same reason is that I do believe that it's by the sweat of the brow and the help of others and your own sort of sweat equity that leads you to creating opportunities for your own success. So and you're talking about um, the existence of a, a, well, certainly a platform, right? Through the combination of the freedoms that you're talking about, the opportunity to um, to yield economic success and mm -hmm. then to capture that wealth and then use it to do other great things. Um, and, and I would also say that for many of us, uh, people of faith, no matter what that faith may be, we are free to worship and to pursue our God and our faith as another means of supporting, sustaining, and empowering us to, to realize those goals. And, in, and of course, you know through your worldly travels that such is not the case everywhere that you can travel. Absolutely, you took the words out of my mouth. That's, that's, I think that is so critical. And certainly I've tried to remind everyone that I've had conversations with recently that wants to talk about what we can do better as a country mm -hmm. and as a community, which I'm, I'm happy to have those conversations about how we continually improve, is give context first. Understand what the alternatives are. And certainly um, from my fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan, I can tell you there's literal war zones that, um, of course, are the worst case example. But you don't have to just go to war zones. You can go to countries like China and see how human rights are addressed. And uh, that is not um, some backwater. That is a rising power in the world. Absolutely. And by no means do the Chinese people have the same guarantee of, of right and life that the American people do. It's a completely different platform in which to live. Yeah. It, and of course, I, I've sort of right now we're in the midst of uh, the Bucks are finally righted the ship and we're doing well in the playoffs here after a, a rocky start against <laughs> right. Orlando. But I'm sort of struck by uh, the irony and, in fact, the hypocrisy at times of some of these institutions that I follow. I, I follow the NBA. And uh, while uh, it was fine that they decided to create a, a social platform for uh, various crusades, various justice-oriented things. I found it uh, interesting that when somebody suggested perhaps we could put on the back of a jersey-free Hong Kong, that met with complete and utter shutdown. Shutdown, right. And, Silence. And, uh, because at the end of the day, it's very clear to me that the NBA is in bed with China for the tune of about a one and a half billion right. uh, on an annual basis. So it's sort of like we will celebrate these freedoms until such time as we can't celebrate them because it doesn't benefit us. It doesn't benefit. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I think is so frustrating to so many people. It's not a lack of acknowledgement, uh, I think, from any serious contributor to the, to the American discussion right now that there's not anything that we can't do better. I mean, that, that's Absolutely. not happening anywhere. It's, let's be honest, let's give context. Let's, let's have our school children understand our history holistically. Mm -hmm. That includes the progress that has been made over now a couple hundred years. And um, let them understand that this is really unique in human history, that you have a place where people can come from anywhere on earth, be accorded the same rights, and have the opportunity to go ahead and, as you just said, be successful to chase your dream. And um, it, I think that is what is so frustrating as we've seen sports and entertainment and all these other venues from which people usually try to seek an escape, mm -hmm. suddenly colored by politics in a way that um, they feel does not give that context in any way, shape, or form. And let's remember too, who are these? Uh, some of these sports expressly trying to market to? It's obviously 
the next generation of fan, the next right. group of ticket and jersey purchasers. And they're a very malleable group, as we know from education, and that's right. why teachers and the institutions of education are so important that kids are taught, you know, the honest, objective truths and facts, and without the sort of the influx of the sort of uh, propagandizing that we sometimes see in some right. of these uh, uh, cultures, and and I and I think clearly that when kids are constantly seeing all the stuff on the court, on the jerseys, on all of the tweets and all that, it's good to have conversations. Those are good for uh, table conversations to talk about the issues of the day. But I also am concerned that you might have a malleable mind that is only hearing one context right. on the issue, and that's not uh, healthy. Right. Well, and I think too, and this is one of the things that I think um, those of us that are in public life can, can make an attempt to push forward in that um, there are many athletes that have great platforms, they have mm -hmm. tons of resources, as we know, mm -hmm. uh, many of them are paid quite well. Many of these franchises have you know, enormous resources and have huge platforms. And I'd like to see more public officials stepping forward and saying, look, if you want to see a reduction in violence in communities, you have massive resources. You have incredible uh, public presence to be able to do this. And if you want to get on the ground with churches and police units across the country and put your time and effort, because you have entire off seasons to do this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I think that'd be great. I, I, I think that'd be wonderful. But that means partnering with people and not just, not just uh, showy displays, but really getting into the grid of it and finding ways to actually help people. Yeah, and, and coming from my previous life in Madison, I think my concern is that I've often thought that the municipality's primary role was to provide essential services. Right. And above that, uh, what you can do to try to set the table for enlightening and positive conversations and constructive change, all the better. Right. But I feel that at times in Madison, we get so bogged down in these sort of esoterical debates and discussions that really have very little to do with the providing of services to Joe and Jill Sixpack, who pay a lot of taxes. Right. And, and I think that's where that disconnect becomes ever so unequivocal, is that there's this gap that those who have been elected don't understand that these constituents of yours are not as interested as you are in advancing some political agenda as they are, are the potholes getting filled? Are right. the cops and firefighters coming quickly when I call 911? And I think that's where they've lost their way sort of in the desert. And that's, yeah. Or are the kids safe? Yeah, or are the kids safe? These Absolutely. basic tenant things and are the kids getting a good education, which again, it's, it's at this moment, a legitimate question is whether or not that's gonna take place. I, so you, you've got a number of years of law enforcement leadership and on the ground experience um, in Madison. Mm -hmm. and, and this is gonna be a wide question and then I'll, we'll talk more specifically sure. about recent events, but you know, what was your greatest ongoing frustration? Um, and again, a, a wide question, right? But I'm curious, as even predating more recent Sure, uh, my, for me, uh, and again in Madison, we're sort of, uh, I'm looking at your former college Madison graduate, so <laughs> she's probably shaking her head a little. Million roles in the room. Yes, she's doing very well. Yes. Yep. Uh, it, we are sort of, uh, we sometimes think we collectively as a community, I think Madison in particular, our public officials think we are the center of the universe <laughs> and that all others have to defer to our wisdom. And it really comes across, quite frankly, as elitist on many fronts, sure but, but we would never ever confront ourselves with such a stark uh, <laughs> juxtaposition of where we're at and where we need to go. Right. But I, I think that it has become tray chic and very trendy and flavor of the day to sort of constantly invoke uh, the police as the narrative of what is all that ills this community. Mm -hmm. Whether, obviously we have to take some ownership and complicity with the problems of the criminal justice system because we are at the front end, the gatekeepers and the intake. Right. However, um, that's not to suggest by any means that it all rests with me. I feel like as the cops go, is that by the time we get called, I mean, Madison has 15 to 20,000 calls a month. Okay. 
where a witness, a citizen, a complainant, a, uh, a victim calls something into the police to the 911 center and then we respond. So 98.5% of our calls are not self-initiated. So when we go, we sort of get what we get and we have to make discernments on what objective and articulable behavior rises to the level of criminal culpability or not. And if it does, we take appropriate actions because we're advocates for victims as well. Right. And and this constantly, the cops are are motivated to do profiling or they're, they're targeting people of color, particularly African-Americans in, in Madison. That just does not bear credence with the statistics and the fact of the matter is that we don't have the time to self-generate and to look at. We're going to people who are calling concerns and we're investigating those using objective facts. If the calls were bad, people are released. Mm -hmm. If the calls have criminal culpability, then why isn't the district attorney declining prosecution or why isn't the judge not convicting or the or the juries so i think there's plenty of blame but when we get the call it's almost like we've got a spill in line six at walmart and the problem is is that what you see then is the, the final desperate act of desperate people who have been failed because they're undereducated right unemployed on drugs addictions in gangs mentally ill and we're sort of the cleanup crew for all of that and and so we don't feel and i still don't feel today talking to the line officers who call me every day mm -hmm. is that they feel there is absolutely no support for the challenges that the police are encountering because we're literally a 24 7 social worker and we don't claim to have phenomenal subject matter expertise in everything but no one else is doing anything so by default it falls to us and i think the officers do an incredibly uh resourceful job considering the dynamics of what they have at two in the morning with nobody else working right. and so that lack of support from public officials both in terms of the pontifications and the fireballs that are being thrown the oblations that are made from the from the council floor from the mayor's office and then it's now starting as you can see um, to be reflective in the rhetoric about, although it won't be only be rhetoric, about defunding the police. Right. Uh, and in Madison, of course, she, the mayor currently sitting, is uh, wants to embrace defunding in the worst possible way. But she knows that that's a buzzword. So for those who are listening, the other euphemism for defunding in political circles now is reimagining. I've heard that. That's yeah, just the that. same thing. <laughs> Reimagining and defunding are one and the same. Right. Well, you're, you're talking about a number of important things here, but one of which, and I've talked to clergy leaders in uh, Milwaukee and Madison, and, and again, mm -hmm. talking about like, what do we do to make the situation better? Right. And, and positively, how do we work better? How do we reduce violence in communities? How do we improve education so that people are on a whole different trajectory in life and ideally not having negative interactions with the police in the first place, thereby making the job easier. But one of the things that we've talked about is what you're alluding to, which is the law enforcement officer of today is playing a role that I saw my Marines have to play in some respect in various combat I'm environments, sure. which is you are a facilitator, you are a peacemaker, you are an enforcer, a mediator, you're a mediator um, in what are oftentimes very personal domestic uh, disputes that involve people who might be on different uh chemical drugs that mm -hmm. are altering their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, you're on constant watch. So you've got either a body cam or you've got people videotaping you or whatever. This is though day in and day out. And so for my Marines that I have these seven months on, seven months off, this is every day that your officers are going to work. So the stress I can only imagine over time is significant. And then you drop that all into the context of feeling that not only you're under the microscope, but the public officials who, and this is my words, I'm not putting them in your mouth, no. but have in so many ways abandoned their own leadership responsibilities are the first to undercut you if they have the opportunity. That is not a long-term recipe for success uh, and, and for putting police in a position where they're not constantly under stress or in a negative scenario. Couldn't agree more. And uh, the fact of the matter is, uh, from an actuarial standpoint now, we see that the level of suicides is going through the roof for 
people involved in law enforcement. I had hoped that in my five and a half years as chief, I would never have to preside over such a thing. And uh, I was blessed that I didn't, but mm-hmm. a month or two, a month and a half after I left, uh, one of my detectives did in fact take his own life and went to the funeral and the family. And and you're right, You f- when you sort of feel like you're under constant, and, and you with your career can certainly use the metaphors more aptly than I, but you feel like you're in a constant stage of readiness and mm-hmm. fatigue. Mm-hmm. And there's no respite. And yes, you work six days on, three days off, but it's almost not enough because of A, the shift work, but B, the baggage that you are accumulating and right. don't healthily find a way to discharge that. I had put in for the last two budgets uh, a number of health and wellness things, including mandatory check-ins with a clinical psychologist. And again, that was considered you know, sort of on the periphery and there's not a whole lot of support for that. Uh, you know, so. And then all the more so, people are going to talk about reimagining or defunding, in which case you're going to be even more cash-strapped. And then, and then well, all the programs that I think make us, we don't, I don't want to see the cops strictly be a reactionary force to chaos, calamity, and crisis. Right. We want to be proactive. We want right. to use our downtime. I always tell my officers, we had pinwheels all over the department when I was there. It was a, a circular thing, and it said... Um, engage, relate, listen, explain, repeat. Right. You're constantly on this pinwheel. And in that sense, when I see that I have five minutes between calls and I see kids playing horse, shooting baskets, I want that cop to park the car, go over, mm-hmm. shoot baskets with them and or kick a soccer ball with them so that they can see uh, police through a lens that isn't always thrust right. into taking somebody away or enforcing something. The enforcement. No one wants to always be the hammer and always be put in the position of who's the next nail. Right. And yet when you continue to constrict the the what I consider vital ancillary services that we do, then we are ultimately going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where all we do is have time to react. Exactly. And, right. and there's municipalities that are, have shown what this looks like. Detroit comes to mind. Oh. Just complete. I'm sure you, you're familiar with the story, but literally all they can do is go call to call. Right. That's it. And right. they're not going to get to all the calls. Uh, the citizenry is well aware of that. And so that further lessens the trust. And so it is literally one negative interaction to the next. No proactive anything. Not, I'm not blaming police officers in Detroit. Oh, no. It's just the reality of their, their budget scenario. And so and we all know, uh, you know all, all too well, because we're talking about today when we're taping this, all of the wonderful community trust that you have put in the bank right. can go like that with one viral, negative, adverse contact, an officer-involved critical incident shooting or something like that. Right. All of that investment can go out the door just like that. Absolutely. And it, yes. And this is the whole reason you have to think proactively yep. as, as to what you're talking about. Yeah. So, as, and I, I do want to talk about events that occurred in the last 24 hours here in just a moment um, before we get to that. Um, so, as you hear these things, defunding, reimagining, whatever the case is, it depends on the municipality, it ranges from New York to Los Angeles. Obviously, it's going to hit closer to home as you'll hear some, Soon. some type of suggestion. Yeah. But these, some of these suggestions are in the area of 20 25%, and some are, are more. Um, I think Minneapolis is the first municipality to take like proactive steps towards actually doing this. And already you're seeing degradation in neighborhoods almost overnight. And residents are upset about that after advocating for these very steps. But as you think as a, a former chief, I mean, so somebody hands you a 25% budget cut. Like, tactically, what, what are your next steps? Well, again, because of the role of municipal servicing, I'd say then we basically become a tactical response unit to crises because that's all we have left in terms of resources. And, you know, just last month, I see Austin has ceded $145 million of their police budget down in Texas. And here's the thing. If you're telling me that we're going to take 10% out of the Madison budget and create a standalone citizen only 
subject matter experts of social workers and clinical psychologists to deal with exclusively the mental health preemption and throughout that call. I'm happy to wash my hands of it and say, here, have it. And then I can live, I can live with that abdication of some of the funding. But I just never quite see the commensurate lip service right. with the funding. And we still end up getting it back in ours. And, and, and we can't do the kind of long-term solutions and problem solving that we'd like to do when you're constantly putting Band-Aids on where tourniquets are required. Right. And there's also, I mean, there's very tactical administrative questions in terms of. Oh, there's going to be layoffs and furloughs and 100%. classes that you can't hire and you can't train. And right. that's terrible because that means right. no one can get off. And then that creates a culture where, okay, then we have to lie to be sick to right. get a day off. And that just, it spirals. There's also a whole other administrative questions. And again, I'm, I'm making parallels because I get sure. some of what you've had about there, but I don't get the full complexity of it. But. When you have a specialist in a combat environment, there might be an explosive ordnance disposal person. I've, I've had to move them around the battlefield in my mm -hmm. counter-ID team. So say you have a mental health specialist and they have to go into a dangerous environment, guess who's going to take them there? Absolutely. <laughs> it's not going to be by them. They, Absolutely. The police well, are going to take them there. I, you know, and I, and I, I've said, you know, so I created a mental health unit. Each division had one mental health person who did nothing, a cop, mm -hmm. who does nothing but mental health identification, diagnostics, preemption, and collaboration with social services. Then out of my budget, I asked, could we get three clinical psychologists to also collaborate with us? Because we don't have that subject matter expertise, mm -hmm. but these officers have the capacity and the desire to want to do more in that. And right. so we could, we could clearly, if someone went two in the morning, was locked in her bathroom and cutting her wrist because she's uh, having an episodic breakdown, mm -hmm. we can send officers, stabilize the scene, and then bring in our clinical psychologist to help us look at problem solving. What are we going to do next step? Right. I don't see social workers on call coming out at two in the morning to a barricaded person to create that intervention. Certainly not by themselves. No. Right. It's just not no. realistic. And it will lead to other bad outcomes. That, yes. Again, this is the have the best intent in the world, but that can create unforeseen problems. Absolutely. Um, Unintended consequences at worst. So as we think about, well, and we've alluded to it, so as we tape this right now, uh, in the last 24 hours, there was an officer, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the, the term I would normally use, officer-conducted shooting. I don't know yeah. if that would be the correct uh, term to use, but um, an individual in Kenosha by the name of Jacob Blake was shot by an officer. and, and I don't have the full context of it. You don't Nor have the do full I, context right? at this time. So it's beyond us to, to really give any meaningful, uh, unless you feel comfortable doing so, but I would say like we don't have the detail of what led to or the full detail of why the officer conducted himself the way he did. What we have seen though, and I think this is what has frustrated me, is uh, politicians like Governor Evers come out and issue uh, statements which... Um, this is again my wording, but more or less insinuating that racism has motivated in one shape or form the conduct of an officer. And at the same time, the governor has admitted that he does not have the full context of the situation either. And therein lies the rub. I, I would expect right. someone with as high a profile as the governor of the state enjoys that this is an opportunity to stress and emphasize a couple of things. One, certainly that there's going to be a full throttled commitment to an exhaustive third party independent investigation by the Department of Criminal Investigation who have nothing to do with the agencies involved. It would have also been an opportunity to express concern that a constituent was 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 uh, shot by an officer right. and to that extent we we pray for his or her whatever the case may be for his in this instance right. uh, recuperation and steady rehabilitation and to his family and friends uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you right. but then this is an opportunity for someone to be an adult in the room and say we live by a rule of law a, a rule of law that is governed by process right. and we can't put people, throw them under the bus, as it were, preemptively until we know all the facts and it is subjected to a process-oriented uh, 
uh, way of dealing with these outcomes by sort of tacitly uh, suggesting that this is another yet another nail in the coffin of police institutionalized racism and what a horrible thing it is. Well, yes, it is a horrible event when anybody gets shot, but you're also winking, blinking and nodding that tacitly uh, protests of outrage, no matter how they are manifested, are OK. And that's not OK. Right. No, it puts not just law enforcement officers, but regular citizens. Oh, absolutely. Officers. You had a, you know, an officer in that situation just responding to try to keep the peace with a brick thrown was knocked mm -hmm. unconscious. I don't know how many private businesses, at least a half a dozen who had nothing to do with anything. Uh, right. Now basically have to start from scratch. You have wholesale disrespect for the rule of law. And in, in that sense, I, I don't know where, uh, while some might say this is a cathartic necessity, uh, I still view it as what it is, and that is a public disorder, criminal damage to property, mm -hmm. and intimidation, uh, and, and a complete flaunting of the fact that there are processes in effect. And you've, you've, you've used the word process many times, and, and I've not walked a mile in your shoes, but again, I, I, I get this, and it was so important in the world that I inhabited in the Marine Corps that like you... Everyone had to understand when a, a negative event occurs that there is going to be an in-depth analysis. Of yep. it. It's going to be done professionally. It's going to be done correctly. It'll be adjudicated if need be, um, but it will be handled. And it was important that um, those serving understand that, just like it's important that law enforcement officers, that it makes it easier for you to enforce discipline and standards. Uh, likewise, too, it's important that the people you're policing understand that because they know that there will be a process by which this will be fully dealt with and it will be dealt with appropriately. When that breaks down. Yeah, well, I'm just saying to your point, you're saying right. exactly what I wish the governor had said, and that is there are a couple of considerations have to be foremost coming out of his mouth in a situation like this. Is One, we are going to hold people accountable. And two, the result of the investigation will be made transparent. Right. Transparency exactly. and accountability are the watchwords of, of public trust, not just for the police, but for any institution. And I wish that there'd been a greater emphasis placed on the duality of those needs as well. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, we're talking about the governor right now, but obviously he's not the only one. There's no. just so many elected officials you're seeing right now who uh, don't have an experience base um, that, and, and it doesn't mean that they had to serve in law enforcement or the military. No. There's just a broader expo exposure to life mm -hmm. to understand how to put yourself in these situations which get to core competencies of government because here we're not talking about i don't know uh we're not talking about putting solar panels on top of every building <laughs> we're talking right, about right. can you keep people safe can you enforce law and order and can you create a society that is both just and accountable and yet safe and mm -hmm. that's kind of table stakes and mm -hmm. if you haven't thought about this stuff critically to understand like, okay i want accountability but it means we also have to have the responsibilities that come with with doing that the right way um it's frustrating to see it. And, and I can tell you that as, as a person who loved and loves their profession, um, when there is a blemish or a tarnish from an officer who is unethical, from an officer who engages in criminal behavior, from an officer who works outside of the script of what we've been trained to do, we too want to see that individual get the full measure of accountability for those actions because that taints the badge of all of us. And so, as we can see, obviously, from the most uh, extreme example of George Floyd, I don't think I heard one uh, law enforcement official anywhere rallying and coming to the aid of the, the principal officer who was involved in that nine and a half minute saga, however long it was. Right. Because everybody suffers under the burden of that very visual um, indictment of what happened. Well, you've just said something that's very important that I've tried to share with people pretty consistently. It's that rank and file officers, law enforcement leadership have a vested interest in making sure that inappropriate incidents don't occur because it Absolutely. literally makes their job harder. It makes their job harder big picture because they're losing broad scale community trust. Absolutely. It makes it harder because the next day they got to go back to the same neighborhood, see the same people. And those interactions are more likely to lead to some type of negative outcome than they were 24 hours ago. And I think that, um, you know, communities where relationships have been, the well's been poisoned, people forget these are humans, 
no, these officers don't want unqualified officers on the street. They don't want people doing the wrong thing. They want accountability on top of this all. Totally agree with you. You know, I, I, I trained officers before I was the chief. And I guarantee you, for all the tactical stuff, the, the range time and everything else mm -hmm. you spent, I never once saw anybody put on their bullet-resistant vest and don their holster and put the gun in the holster and say, gee, I wonder if this is the day I get to use that cool training that I've spent legions of hours. Heck no. Right. As a matter of fact, in Madison, because of the criticality of every police move, I frankly worry that officers aren't going to do as trained right. and they're going to be killed it's because they hesitated and they paused and right. they waited because they said, oh, I don't want to be stranded in left field and a pariah in my own community. I have kids that go to school. I have friends. I have family. And I know that these things can take months to be resolved. And while if you're thinking all that, it's at your peril. The other thing is, as a chief, I can tell you this last year, uh, our recruitment was down 45%. And the retention is a huge problem as people are just Katie barred the door. They're taking retirement penalties, recruits. In Madison, you have to do 18 months or you have to pay a penalty. You don't do at least 18 months. Okay. They're literally going 18 months and a day or a week and then boom, I'm out the door so I don't have the penalty. So we are doing a disservice longitudinally for our communities because fewer and fewer people have aspirations of the job mm -hmm. and the good it can do when it's always cast in such a negative light. Right, right. The other thing is, is that in Madison, and I, I sense it's, it's coming to a theater near you everywhere, mm -hmm. is the notion of we need independent auditing of everything the police chief and the police department does. Mm -hmm. We need civilian accountability boards and layers and layers, tiers and tiers of uh, sort of, we have to hold the police accountable. And I'm like, wow, I actually kind of think we're accountable. I mean, right. if a cop messes up, they have internal discipline. Mm -hmm. If it's really bad, they might be subjected to investigation by the Department of Justice at the state level or a civil rights violation by the FBI and the Department of Justice there. You have the fourth estate. The media is going to call us out and call the officer out for bad behavior. Right. And you also have civil liability. And oh yeah, we have the police and fire commission, an institution that's been around for 150 years in this state that also has some druthers with this. So there's an awful lot of mechanisms and I, I, I don't, I'm not standing as a blockade per se, but some of the things that I see being um, champion, if you will, to me are, are sort of a, a way to placate people who think that there's going to be significantly different outcomes and nation, nationwide. We have not seen that to be the case. Right. Well, and a lot of what you're talking about points back to the idea that like you can't, in all cases, you cannot out-systematize things. It comes down to people. And Absolutely. Making the right decisions. Couldn't and, have expressed it any better. Right. And and your job was so critical to that in being a police chief. You are a, you lead your department. You mm -hmm. are accountable. Once you step into that role, uh, you know the baggage that comes with it. You, mm -hmm. you are on the you are in the spotlight. You are on the hook. There are out there. There are people out there making decisions. Uh, in essence, not in your name per se, but right. your department and. That means you have to enforce accountability. And that, again, gets back to the idea you should be able to, to make the right decisions for your personnel and so on. Um, but that's it. Like, you need good people doing this. Right. And, uh, and But you also have to have um, the support of your city department. You have to have the support of correct. the mayor and the council. Right now in Madison, we do not have that support. And right now there are resolutions pending that would ban the police use of ever deploying tear gas under crowd control situations to remove uh, pepper spray from officers as a less lethal deployment instrument. And folks, you have no subject matter expertise on this. Right. You are literally asking right. us to go to every call with the range of our fisticuffs or a gun. Yeah. You're, you're literally taking the tools that can create options and alternatives to fatalities. and owing to your omnipotence of what you gauge as public polling on the matter, which I think is also skewed, right. you are putting your uh, frontline people in harm's way unnecessarily. And, and citizens. Right? Absolutely. And that's, and that's the bottom line. Right.
people right. are going to get hurt worse. Absolutely. And so, yeah, no, this is a very important topic you brought up because this is now, yes, Fire and Police Commission is getting involved in this, uh, municipality leaders, uh, state leaders, so on and so forth, trying to decide in the moment what officers should be able to do, trying to bar certain activities and, and not others, whether it's a, a tool or uh, use of uh, physical or, holds or yep. cases. But at the end of the day, right, in that moment, you are one by one stripping away the officer's options and what is leaving is lethal force. Exactly. And I think what they're trying to do is what are the quick fixes that I can go to and point to and show to my potential voters? Right. Look at what I did. Look what I did. Right. I want to make it emphatically clear that good police departments, as Madison is and, and, and hopefully will continue to be, and good chiefs everywhere should want to embrace public input, should want to always adopt a model of continuous improvement. You can't just say, you know, we used to, every class that went through would be pepper sprayed and tased. <laughs> and, and that happened even during my watch. Because, and, I, and every year I would go to my use of force the trainers and I say, okay, it's the annual time when you're getting ready to do this. So it's the annual time when you have to remind me, why are we doing it? Mm -hmm. Is it still relevant? Or is this some sort of fraternal hazing that has always been the way we've done things? <laughs> and they say, no, Chief, we want to be able to, A, with pepper mace, show that you can be maced. People from the community can buy pepper mace over yes. the counter at a hardware yeah. store. You can be maced. You can fight through it. This is what it will feel like, and this is what how it feels differently than if someone has a stun gun or a taser. Right. And so you understand what those are. And so when you on the test, if when you're testifying in a civil action, and and the plaintiff's attorney says, "Well, you probably have no idea what it was like to, the pain you inflicted." Well, actually, I do because <laughs> I've been there and I've done that as part of my training. So, right. but we have to be open to those changes, changes in curriculum, changes in standardized testing, changes in what use of force, good, better, baddest. So it's not like we're digging our heels in or anything like that. Right. It's just that sometimes when you cut off your nose to spite your face because you feel like, okay, look, I can point to something. I took tear gas and pepper spray away from the cops. Did you really do something that you think is helpful? <laughs> or will it have unintended consequences down the road? Right. And then so much of what you're talking about is like, again, it gets back to this idea. This cannot be put on autopilot. This no. is a constant... Your business is a thinking business and a people business. Absolutely. And, right? 100% human interaction. And yes, you have tools available to you. You have training available to you. But uh, law enforcement, you know, you are going to be interacting with people every second that you're on that job. Absolutely. And you got to be thinking. Leaders in law enforcement have to be thinking critically about the future. And what I'm hearing from you is you're all about engaging with the community. You're all about engaging with public leaders. You wish they would do it more. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because some in, in Madison, some of the groups that are leading demonstrations uh, now, I was asked, well, why don't you sit down with these folks, Chief? I said, you don't think we haven't tried? <laughs> I mean, before every protest, before every march, before every rally, I would have people from my set team, special events team say, contact the named leaders or the de facto leaders, mm -hmm. see what the plan is and see how we can make this a win-win. So if they right. want to walk from uh, 1st Street up East Washington to once around the Capitol for a lap, we can provide parade marshals and make sure nobody uh, destroys the integrity of their core group of walkers and get them there safely. If they want an intersection, I'll give them an intersection for 15 minutes for a photo op, but then let's move it on. But we can't get folks to sit down. And I think part of the reason is, and this is complete opinion on my part, is some of the groups that we're dealing with want to have sort of an edgy, sketchy, sure. we don't negotiate with the cops, we don't come, we don't go through conventional means at negotiating, and that skews to sort of an appeal to a younger person that they get action, they take to the streets, and, and you know they do things that, that we don't see. The NAACP, 100 Black Men, uh, Greater African American Clergy of Madison, those are groups that I can negotiate with and we can find common ground every time. Uh, some of the groups now have a sense of militancy to them and they do not want to be seen brokering any sort of negotiations or common talks with the police. 
some of those groups, in fact, are, are wandering around Madison tearing down statues uh, yes. built up to union colonels who fought to free people. Abolitionists. Abolitionists, quite literally. Absolutely. And Ford bis, uh, and Miss Forward. I mean, I yeah. mean that <laughs> represents everything that is progressive Progress. and what we're trying to do. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it, as a matter of fact, we have some, I heard some back tape on that. Literally, as they're taking down the one statue, the abolitionists, you can hear people in the background. What this guy do? I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, literally, it, it literally says it on the base. Literally, of the statue. what this guy do? Well, when you're pulling on the tail, probably you probably don't see the the marquee and the yeah, beginning of it. So no it's doubt. it's incredible. It really is, and it speaks to again this holistic again law enforcement getting stuck in what are larger societal problems yes. that start. And our, our group does a ton of stuff that I mentioned earlier around um, education, the need for education reform, giving humans context to the world in which they live. And so that kids grow up understanding the progress, the society that they live in, how unique it is in the entire world, which we started off our conversation today, um, that there are so many good things. And it's great to continue to push for improvement, mm -hmm. but understand who came before you, what their experience truly was and the progress that they made that allowed you the freedoms that you still have. And when that's missing, very difficult for a law enforcement officer to walk into a situation and again, try and deal with the crisis of the moment. Um, and that's what's so- and, and, and usually when we see this sort of um, very, very broad base um, disruption, mm -hmm. Uh, leading to destruction of property and and people getting hurt, people getting assaulted, as we've seen even elected officials who are allies, arguably in principle or philosophy. Uh, to me, as a, as a chief, they always say, "Chief, how do you project the future for Madison?" And I get that every year, and I say, "Okay, I I have a couple of litmus tests: a education." As go the fortunes of our educational system, so goes the fortunes of everything that swirls around it, including crime. Right. B, what's the level of the dysfunctional family? If we don't have intentional mentoring, if we don't have people that are there catching our youth when they need it most, not the strategic drive-by altruists like, okay, like right now before school, everybody gets a backpack filled to the rim with pen and pencil, of course, if we weren't going virtual. <laughs> okay, then I don't see these people again until, okay, Thanksgiving. Oh, everybody should have to have a turkey at Thanksgiving. And then the drive-by altruists are gone until Christmas. Oh, every kid should have a toy under the tree. And then we see it. No, I'd rather forego all those things and say weekly mentoring to right. make up for those gaps. And then uh, challenge neighborhoods. As the neighborhoods become more challenged because of joblessness or kids that are failing in education, not being affirmed, they hang out with other kids of like mind, and together we create gangs. And yeah. it's those are sort of the fronts where you have education, family, and neighborhoods. If you don't have a health and wellness indice for those, uh, then we're, we're operating across purposes. Well, and so we're talking about schools right now. Right. Uh, one of the things that's come up as in, in reaction to um, the death of George Floyd and, and just many of the protests is, people making the case that uh, police officers should be taken out of schools. Mm -hmm. uh, I have my own opinion on that, but I want, I would like to hear your counter or your, your response to that. Well, in Madison, of course, it, it's fraught with peril because the SROs are racist. We have four high schools. All the time I was chief, three of the high schools were staffed by African-American males, mm -hmm. and the fourth one was a, a Latina female. Okay. So the racist card, again, is this bogus smokescreen. Uh, the other thing is, is actually these officers have to audition for this position as if they were going to be a neighborhood officer. So there's usually someone from a student, a principal, someone from the administration, someone from my administration, and they audition. If you get the gig, that means you start out with the freshman class and you graduate with them. You're done when they're seniors and they're walking. Okay. And over the course of that time, your job is to build relationships, be preemptive, be collaborative. I don't want Ricky or Rachel the rat in there looking to write tickets for everything. <laughs> that That's counterintuitive and, and we don't. But when they say, well, look at all these tickets. Well, first of all, a lot of the tickets we're writing were being directed to by school officials for truancy. Okay. And they don't have the authorization, so we end up getting to have to write that. And then a lot of them for unauthorized persons or disorderly conduct, again, 
principals are saying, this kid isn't supposed to be here, this person is supposed to be here, they're creating a disturbance, please handle it with a citation. And so I, I, com I completely disagree with those who say that these, these officers in Madison at least uh, are not helping. They're helping a lot. As a matter of fact, they've taken guns and knives and drugs out of our schools. They prevented a lot of erstwhile gang wars that could have evap that could have precipitated, but but for them. And so, uh, for Madison, it might be a blessing that this first semester is going to be virtual because when those kids get back under the same roof, the activity that's happening on social media at night mm -hmm. will take place the next day under the same roof called the school. And it's only a matter of time. And you're talking about, and this is interesting, is you, you talk, and I, I didn't know this, but uh, an officer starting with a class, finishing the, that term or that tour of duty or that class Four years. graduates. So this is, I think, very critical because knowing the lay of the land when you <sighs> walk into a bad situation, talk about that because you, you know context. Absolutely. When you know kids by name right. and know that they can't basically be disruptive in anonymity, right. they're going to keep their hands in yeah. their pocket and they're going to keep moving on to class right. as opposed to those who know nothing about it. And, and the teachers, quite frankly, they're keeping their heads down. They don't want to get sucked into this turmoil. Right. They just want to teach, and right. I can't say that I blame them. Right. And right. and the security guards, uh, while they're they have good faith attempts and some training, they're also very much hamstrung. To some extent, they can do some relationship building, but at the end of the day, you have to have someone who has the authority to bring about a logical consequence for bad behaviors. Right. And I, I mean, uh, again. My, my experience, but I'm, I'm curious on your reaction, but the calls aren't going to stop. The no. violence will occur, the calls will happen. Now the question is, does the officer who walks into that building who wasn't there to start the morning understand at all who they're dealing with? Because you talk about the preventative method. Absolutely. Physically being there makes it less likely it happens. When you have an, a, an SRO there, mm -hmm. the SRO knows the players, right? knows the social worker and the nurse, knows the teachers and the principals. If this kid has an IEP, they're going to work within the IEP. Mm -hmm. They're going to do everything in their power to avoid a sanction and to mm -hmm. work with those things that are consistent with what the social worker is suggesting for this kid's ongoing success in school. Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, is, this is not a, a disservice to the, the patrol officer. The patrol officer is going to come. The, the, the calls are stacked up in the queue. I've right. got to get in, get out, and get on to the next one. Right. I don't care about Jimmy or Jenny's little IEP. I'm just caring that he whacked somebody without consent causing pain. That's called a battery. Right. They're going to do what they have to do uh, at least to address the victimized part of it or the disorder part of it and move on. They're not going to say, don't, I don't know what's about the social work. I'm dealing with the behavior here. Right. And so I think actually you're going to get uh, more arrests, more tickets, and or frankly, because it's Madison, uh, we're going to get less calls until things really hit the fan because they don't want to have their numbers, their end of the year numbers reflect okay. that they don't have a complete order in their schools. And there's a, and if I'm correct, and correct if I'm wrong, there's a Justice Department element of this too. You're talking about the calls, disciplinary actions, yes. disparate impact issues where DOJ oh, yes. can suddenly get involved with the school well, simply of because. And so that, to that reason, things may not be reported. There's lots of things that, well, and, and quite frankly, principals, everybody has a boss and their boss is on <laughs> Dayton Street with the superintendent. What does it look like if one high school never calls the police, they try to handle everything, tamp it down, mm -hmm. and the other one looks like it's going through the roof because the principal's trying to get the police involved, as they should, right. for inappropriate behavior. So it, it's sort of a, a gamesmanship of sorts that's played at the level of, unfortunately, where children are going to be involved. Right. And again, getting back to that law of unintended consequences, yep. right? Everything we're, everything you're talking about, to me, reads to more, not just negative outcomes, but just a greater likelihood that there is going to be some type of violent outcome. Because, again, things are, when things wait longer, when people have no context, when they're right. being thrust into the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, all of a sudden, it's just more likely that it is going to well, become physical. And, and let's not forget the opportunity for an SRO to occupy that proactive role that is so dire and so lacking in patrol services. We just recently obviously buried an 11-year-old girl, the unintended victim of a drive-by between two cars taking place. 
Now, first of all, the person who was able to crack the case, the person who identified the players who were involved, knew them because she was, before she was just a detective when I left, mm -hmm. the SRO at East, and she knew these kids. Oh, so she actually knew the kids. She yeah. knew the, the players who were involved. So she right. was instrumental in, 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 in creating that. And then let's look at the life experience of Zuma Franco, who was the same officer, now detective. At 14, living in Colombia, she's an immigrant, mm -hmm. legalized, living in South Central LA, gets pregnant at 14, has to drop out of school, has to get a job, has her mom and her grandmother help support her while she's working and going to night school. So Zuma would always say, I can relate very well to these kids. I said, every time I see a class graduate, it's like, I'm getting to officially graduate now. Right. And that kind of woman who speaks Spanish is very relatable. The kids love her. She's like the Pied Piper. <laughs> I, I, I just don't quite understand. It. Well, I do understand. It's about politics. It's it about narratives. It's about foregone conclusions that have agendas that have nothing to do with what's in the best interest of these kids. Yeah. You referred before, like, what is the quick fix or solution? Maybe neither of those things, but it's quick and it, it appeases some element of a political base. It does. Right. It really does. Right. But, anyway. But no, I mean, it, it. you're keeping the focus on what we're trying to do here and No Better Friend, which is, okay, you want to make things better. Great. Let's have that conversation. Let's talk about the reasonable things that can be done. Let's not throw out the good with the bad. Let's talk about how we actually keep uh, not just kids, but our entire community more safe. There are ways to do this. Absolutely. And yet at the same time, keep accountability, the discipline, and so much of what you talked about today, I think is a very critical message that all, every corner of society here that police officers want accountability. They want people on the job doing the right thing because Absolutely. they have a very personal vested interest. They want to go home to their family at night. Absolutely. And it's just more likely to happen if their brethren officers are up to par and doing the right thing and, and trained properly and have the resources to do the job right. That's why when I first became chief, I put into our policy manual a duty to report, mm -hmm. a duty to intervene, a duty to take action when you see excessive force, when you see criminal culpability, when you see anything that you know is contrary to what the law, to what morals, and to what our code of conduct is, you are going to be held also liable, almost as an accomplice to the bad act, right. if you don't do something affirmative to break that up. And I think to your point is, if everybody believes in that, that that's going to be a part and parcel of your work culture, right. then that makes it easier for everyone to hold their brother and sister officers responsible and accountable for bad acts. Right. Yeah, we, well, I, I carried this in the Marine Corps and a no better friend. It's in everybody's job description, but always act like somebody's watching. Absolutely. Right? And they are with cameras nowadays. Yeah, I mean, are, you can't get, literally. she's probably one of them. You can't get out of a squad car on State Street and have 15 people when the lights are on your squad car with their phones and you're, you're always on candid camera. That's yeah. before your time, dear. But uh, you can Google it when I'm gone. So. Candy camera, great show. Alan Fun. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to go down that. You're nowhere near as old as me. I'm like Methuselah in age, so you don't want to go there, my friend. In any event, thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming, Chief Gold. One last question oh, after sure. that we're asking everybody as we close up. So we talked about problems. We've talked about solutions. One of the questions I've asked everybody as we close out is, as you look to the future, what makes you most hopeful for the future of our society and our country? I think, again, that we have people who are still aspirational and inspired to do the right thing, uh, to do well at whatever line of work that they do, to take personal pride and to own what it is they're responsible for and what they want to do going forward. I, I think the human condition, as fragile as it is, has incredible potential. And particularly when we surround that potential with sort of resources and infrastructure and reinforcement that allows those dreams to, to, to give rise to reality. And I think that that's the beauty of the human condition is that even in spite of all the adversity that today's uh, line officers are facing, I look at those who would actually put an application in to be a police officer. And I think one of two things, either you're crazy, <laughs> but moreover, I think 
Hallelujah. Here is right. still someone that believes that in my small window of the world, for the eight hours or the beat that I'm going to be policing this small part of Madison, I think I can make a difference. And I think if we all believe that we still have the capacity to be impactful and to make a difference, that everyone benefits from that. Absolutely. Chief, thank you so much for coming on the Right Idea oh, Podcast. Thank I'm you. I'm so glad you were able to accommodate me. Thank you we're very much. To have it's an you. honor. And again, great to get you back to the real world for a little while. I know you'll go back to Madison. That's okay. But <laughs> I'll take the back road. <laughs> but thanks for your many years of service to, uh, to your community and to our state. And thanks so much for coming out today. Well, we appreciate it. And uh, back from Madison, we always had a, a saying, police like a champion today, P-L-A-C-T. And so uh, I, I know that they are still doing that. And I know officers are working under incredible odds, under incredible extenuating circumstances. And God bless you all for what you're doing for our community. Keep us safe. Thank you, Chief. Thank God you. Bless. Thank you. I'm Kevin Nicholson. Thank you for joining us today on the Right Idea Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the Right Idea Podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Ricochet, Stitcher, Luminary, or wherever you listen to podcasts.